This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever it is that you're streaming. We're broadcasting tonight from the Triple R Studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and I'm joined tonight by screen lecturer and fellow board member of Melbourne Cinematheque, Eloise Ross. Hey, Flick. Hey, hello. And making her Primal Screen debut, video artist and filmmaker, Jessie Scott. Hello. Welcome to Primal Screen. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Uh, So on tonight's show, we're going to chat to Jessie about her film Rainbow Video, which is screening at Cinema Nova on Saturday the 22nd of July as part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. We'll also share some of the films we're most excited to see at MIF, which kicks off next month. Tickets are on sale now, so you can get your pen and paper ready for our recommendations. But first, a news item that impacts not only film and television production in Hollywood and the countless US productions happening around the world, but also something that has brought labour laws in the global screen industry into sharper focus. We are the victims here. We are being victimized by a very greedy entity. I am shocked by the way the people that we have been in business with are treating us. I cannot believe it, quite frankly. How far apart we are on so many things. How they plead poverty that they're losing money left and right when giving hundreds of millions of dollars to their CEOs. It is disgusting. Shame on them. They stand on the wrong side of history at this very moment. So on Thursday, it was announced that members of the Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists would be joining the Writers Guild of America in a strike. Now, this is the biggest shutdown of Hollywood since these two unions went on strike together back in 1960. We are now joined by screenwriting researcher and cultural critic Clem Basto. Clem, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So this actually all started with the Writers Guild of America strike in May this year and the announcement on Thursday um, is that SAG and AFTRA have now joined the strike. Before we get into this new development, what can you tell us about the writers' strike and, and why it started? So they're both on strike for similar but not identical reasons um, and a lot of it has to do with the lack of if you like, trickle-down income in the streaming era. So the last time there was a writer's strike, uh, that was sort of a twinkle in Hollywood's eye, this idea that Netflix would go from being the place that mails you a DVD (laughs) in your letterbox to something that shows your work 
you know, 24 hours a day. And residuals, which is the money that traditionally um, actors and writers have made from their films uh, and TV shows being shown on cable or in syndication, have dwindled to absolutely nothing. Um, and so that's a big part of it. It's it's no longer a middle-class occupation, you know, the days of being able to be a working writer in Hollywood. And this is, the, I think, the thing that's really important to state, the people who have the loudest voices in these discussions, for better or, you know, I think, and that's a good thing from a media perspective, are often the Oscar winners, you know, you people like Aaron Sorkin. The problem doesn't really affect them so much as it does the people who traditionally were able to become TV writers, film writers, and just that was just their job, you know. Um, so that was a big part of it. And also the studios and the streaming companies' refusal to acknowledge the threat of AI. So in a writer's uh, strike context, that was the possibility that AI could be used to re- do rewrites. Um, so these jobs that screenwriters would traditionally do once you've finished the script. So you might be on set doing, uh, you know, additions as you go along, um, that they might be able to use AI to do that, that they might be able to use AI to create, you know, entirely new works based on uh, what has already been written. Um, so that was, those were sort of the two key aspects of the writer's strike. And so, yeah, they've been on strike for uh, over 70 days now, but I think the actor's strike is more immediately disruptive to Hollywood. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> a lot of these studios can live without writers. But, well, we, yeah, it really it really grinds everything to a halt when the actors can't show up. Yeah, well, there's the visibility that the actors give um, and and how many familiar faces. And we I played a clip just, just before of Fran Drescher. How amazing. I mean, I've always loved Fran uh, as a screen presence, but I thought her speech was so powerful. It was so succinct as well. It's been shared so much on social media. So she's the yeah, president. And, that's, and... and that speech was totally freestyled apparently. Wow. Totally off the cuff. <laughs> I mean, she's a big lefty from way back, which is I, I'm really pleased that everyone's discovering this. <laughs> I have to say I am too, Clem. It's really exciting <laughs> that she's finally getting some exposure. It's so good. Comrade Fran. Yeah, I love the um the old nanny memes that have been circulating. Because also the fact that this started, you know, the last time that these two unions were brought together was over 60 years ago. Eerily similar circumstances. Yeah, it tell was, us about that. So it was, it was where the idea of residuals emerged, this idea that television is now a major force. You're showing our films. Um, you know, long long since their time in cinemas and what are we getting to show for it? Um, and so, yeah, it really is a case of history repeating itself with the addition of some truly dystopian, um, you know, Black Mirror-esque <laughs> stuff. And, I mean, I think, you know, if, if the AI threat is existential to writers, it's perhaps even worse for actors because I think, unfortunately, these exciting developments such as the AI powered de-aging of Harrison Ford in Indiana Mm. Jones, done with his consent, um, has demonstrated that it is possible to essentially replace actors. So one of the great uh, offerings that the AM uh, AM PTP, I always get the P's and the T's mixed around, um, brought to the table was this suggestion that they could uh, employ background actors, so what we would know as extras, for a day rate. So depending on what state you're working in in America, that's usually only a couple of hundred dollars. It's a, it's similar here. I used to be an extra in, in, um, in uni. 
So they would pay them $150, do a full body scan, face scan, and then be able to use them to populate background scenes in film and TV for eternity in any media now invented or, you know, hereafter. So, like, the fact that they thought that that was something worth bringing to the table I think tells you a lot about the value that these CEOs place in the very thing that has made them rich. Mm. Actually, this is giving me strange flashbacks. I'm just re-watching uh, BoJack Horseman at the moment and there's a gag <laughs> in there about BoJack being basically just um, mapped. Um. <laughs> to be turned into Have you seen that film with Robin Wright Penn? There was Yeah, yeah. the Congress. Yes. yes. I mean, that was so prescient, yeah, really, thinking really about it. I really liked that mm. film. And I remember that being a sort of, wow, that seems really futuristic and mm. Imagine that. Kind of thing. <laughs> it's fascinating. Fascinating that we're now having that discussion and it's coming into this strike action, it's coming into, you know, things that are going to have an impact here as well. But let's get down to what this strike actually means because I was looking through what the rules are around it for for actors who are striking. Mm -hmm. There's no performance and that includes stunts, pilot on camera aircraft, puppeteering, no um, performance capture, motion capture work. This includes the work as a background actor or what we call extras, mm-hmm. stand-ins, body doubles, all off-camera work um, is prohibited, uh, stunt coordination, narration, pre-production work, so makeup tests, rehearsals, camera tests, scanning, promo as well, which is a huge part of it, especially now when we've got lots of award ceremonies coming up, some really big films Mm. Um, coming out as well you know junkets panels podcast appearances it's it's going to have a huge impact how are we as the audience members going to be impacted here in Australia well uh, yeah it has come at a a pretty significant time Uh, you know it's blockbuster season and I think it's a uniquely exciting blockbuster season we've had Mission Impossible come out Barbie and Oppenheimer about to hit Indiana Jones Um, so it is it is a tricky time because I think, you know, now now more than ever, we want to be voting with our dollars and saying we do actually want to see original films in cinemas. We don't want to give these CEOs fuel to, you know, bring about their, their golden future of AI-powered reality TV. Um, but, yeah, it will the, the impact will be almost immediate because, as you, as you mentioned, Flick, it's, um, it's, we're heading towards the Emmys. Um, San Diego Comic Con is in a, a week or so, and that's now been gutted. Um, you know, previously I think they were going to bring Dune 2 to that and all the TV shows. I mean, some of that promo will continue. It just won't have any of the stars there. So the big story on the weekend was um, the Oppenheimer premiere in London um, halfway through the cast left. And so some people have have heard that and then gone oh should we not be going to the movies but the reason they left is because a a premiere is a promotional activity so it's not they're not saying don't go and see this film they're just they're just not allowed to be there under the um the terms of the strike but yeah I mean it will it will affect our industry as well obviously there are a lot of co-productions here I mean the kind of limits of whose jurisdiction um you know begins and ends is quite Byzantine and we went through that with the when the writers strike began looking at as um, Australian Writers Guild members what we were allowed to work on mm-hmm. um, 
so, you know, when in doubt, call your union. But yeah, it will <laughs> it will have a big impact here. And and also, I think we can expect the studios to blame the writers and the actors for any impacts that happen. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And a lot of the reporting has been really disappointing on that front, particularly around the cancellation of the Metropolis production at, at Docklands. Mm, um, I was going to touch upon that. Huge, mm. yeah, huge job losses locally, and it was a real shame that a lot of the kind of soundbite coverage of that was it's because of the writer's strike. Um, reading between the lines, that wasn't the case, that that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. But, mm. yeah, so I think I think we will see some productions close down or be delayed um, and it will be interesting to see how it affects co-productions too because a lot of stuff gets made here now under the auspices of Prime and, and Netflix um, so yeah, I think I think the the effects will be fairly wide reaching, not just in America but around the world. Well, also how the strike is being inter- interpreted as either lawful or unlawful, depending mm. on the country as well. Because in the UK, HBO's House of Dragons is continuing production. Actually, I looked into it. Most of the actors in the UK are, of course, not aligned with with SAG-AFTRA. They're mainly actually represented by a sister union, Equity. Mm. But the, there's just this the lawyers have been brought in and equity is saying no uh you know we 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 agree that it's lawful according to u.s law but we have been advised that it is not lawful under uk law so there's these really interesting (laughs) intersections of production which will depend on whether certain shows are going to continue or not um absolutely and there's also some really interesting i mean one thing i think for everyone to keep in mind if you are a writer or an actor is be very across what you are allowed to do because often if you're, let's say you're a young actor, you're, you're doing the, the time-honoured, you know, home and away to Hollywood pipeline, you want to make sure that you don't accidentally cross any picket lines because you can be barred from joining that union for life. So it's the same with the um, with the Writers Guild strike. So I would say that for anybody listening, just be very, very careful and when in doubt, ring your union because, yeah, there is there is some conjecture over what constitutes um, crossing a picket line in this situation because of the diffuse nature of, of the film industry these days. This has prompted for me to go back through and seeing how politically engaged SAG-AFTRA has been. It was really interesting going back through some of the decisions that they've made. I think more the most recent one that stood out to me was the Donald Trump ban. So Donald Trump was part of the SAG-AFRA. He resigned from the group (laughs) in 2021, but he was also barred from ever rejoining um, because of his uh, attacks on journalists and all the the stuff to do with how he he acted with the election. And it's kind of fascinating, uh, firstly, that Trump was in of this but there are, well, I guess he was a TV presenter. Yeah, he was on a lot of screens, and he he was. Um, there's 160,000 people that are part of this union. It's got a yeah. huge amount of power behind it. Yeah, it's a much. It's a, in terms of like kind of broader impact. It is. It is a much bigger union than the Writers Guild. You know, the writers are. I think it's about 17,000 of them, um, and it's the same in both cases in the sense that, you know, a very, very small amount of those people are making a lot of money. Mm. And so these strikes are often misinterpreted as a kind of cash grab by the the elite. Um, when it is actually the opposite, it's it's people like Matt Damon arguing that the, the journeyman, you know, writer or, or the actress who just does a bit here and there to kind of, as a day job, um, deserve to have fair remuneration as well. 
Yeah. Um, and it, I think that's starting to cut through, which is interesting, even just in the last 24 hours. Like, I know it's always dangerous to read the comments, but I think the initial response, you know, in comments on, say, ABC News videos about it was like, oh, boo-hoo, all the millionaires, you know, wah, wah, wah. And even, I think, in the last day, people are starting to kind of understand actually what they're talking about is is a big industry that, that is most people aren't Matt Damon, in, yeah. you know, and that it should be something you can just do as a job. Clem, I wanted to ask quickly, I saw yeah. another clip of Fran Drescher talking and saying that um, they'd given the, uh, you know, the CEOs mm-hmm. uh, a 12-day extension on negotiations so that they could in good faith come to the table with something and they came with nothing is what Mm. she said. The idea being that, you know, they, they seemingly just wanted to have a little more time to promo their movies in summer, (laughs) you know, box office season. (laughs) Look, I I think, I mean, I, I, I would say um, I would not be surprised if that was part of the discussions. Yeah. And I just, I, I wanted to ask, like, that sounds pretty bad and obviously, this seems like a really serious scenario and in terms of historical comparison, how do you mm. see this playing out? Does it seem as though they are uh, less likely to negotiate as in the past? The AMPTP, I mean, yeah. they don't seem all that interested. It's been quite remarkable. They, <laughs> it, 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 of all things, it made me actually think of the Jimmy Savile documentary and there was this insight that, uh, not not saying that there is any comparison between him and these CEOs, but there was a moment in that documentary where one of the psychologists talks about when people get away with certain crimes for a long time, they just start telling the truth. Um, <laughs> and I feel like that's what they're doing. They're, they're, there's the sort of pantomime villainy of these CEOs saying, we're just going to drag it out till they lose their houses. We want the writers to go bankrupt. You know, they're, they're saying that it's not even the quiet bit anymore. Like, mm. um, so in that sense, it is, I think, you know, Brian Cox was saying today he can see it stretching out towards the end of the year. Um, I do think that the actors bring a level of visibility um but also again unfortunately you know some films did go ahead without writers during the writers strike in 2007 um it's not you know out of the question that they can kind of find a workaround Mm -hmm. let's say you've already got a script in the can you know you might not have a writer there to do um any revisions on the set but you can you can still make the film uh whereas if you don't have the actors showing up that's a big deal and I Mm -hmm. think for some of these CEOs they are kind of it's sort of stolen valour. I mean, you know, David Zaslav famously had that big party at Cannes where he invited all of the actors and was sort of seemingly high on this proximity to these these big stars. Um, so if they don't have access to those people, I think that does, that does make a real difference. Um, you know, I think the Directors Guild recently uh, did sign a new agreement and I know Christopher Nolan was talking today about how he hopes that that's a good precedent for the negotiations for the actors and the writers, um, that they can point to that. I'm, I'm not off the top of my head. I don't know the, the specific terms. Um, but, yeah, it does... I, I sort of keep swinging between I hope this is the beginning of a huge, like, labour revolution. Uh, but at the same time, it does it does mm. just feel like it's it's very kind of it would be possible for these guys to just say, oh, well, you know, and just full steam ahead on their AI revolution. Mm. Having said that, I think if they did, it would be garbage. Like the likelihood of these supposedly, you know, incredible technological advancements 
making anything even remotely as interesting as something like White Lotus or Oppenheimer or even the soapy, you know, is, is pretty slim. So it is possible that they will try and pull the rabbit out of the hat and, and kickstart that. I don't think it would be as successful as they think it will be. No. But, but, I mean, you know, um, Sean Gunn, the actor, made a great point today. He He was at the Netflix picket specifically because... You know, he was in Gilmore Girls. It has been such a huge money spinner for Netflix to have Gilmore Girls as part of their streaming library. Um, and these actors and writers are getting, you know, six cents here and there. Like Heather Matarazzo posted a screenshot of her residuals tracker, which is this um, SAG-AFTRA thing that you can log into and see where your residuals are coming from. You know, she's been in a number of films that I'm sure have done very successfully on Netflix and other streaming platforms, and she made six cents last year. Wow. <laughs> uh, $0.06 and nine cents this year. So things are looking up. Um, you know, there's no there's no planet on which that is an appropriate, you know, whatever you think about actors and whether they're paid enough, like given the amount of money that the streaming platforms and the studios are making out of these these um, this screen media, like it's just... It seems quite cut and dry to me. Mm. And I think that most people can appreciate that. Mm. If you did a job and somebody else continued to make money out of your labour and you didn't see any share of that, that that seems unfair. Absolutely. I suppose, like, this this whole discussion, it's really bringing into focus for me and I'm sure many others the power of unions, um, what Mm. collective action can actually accomplish. For listeners, audience members, people who work in media, who write about film and TV as fellow broadcasters, what do you think are some of the ways that we can support and stand in solidarity with the strike? I would say join your union. Mm. Um, you know, we, we, I'm in a lot of them <laughs> and, and a lot of my unions are traditionally, you know, very low membership in, in casualised industries. Freelancing has always been, it's always been hard to get freelancers to join the MEAA. Um, the Writers Guild, it's a similar situation, I'm sure. Uh, I think that that's a big one. You know, there are, there are like direct... Um, mutual aid options that you can look up if you go to SAG-AFTRA's Instagram and Twitter and, and Facebook pages. Same with the Writers Guild. There are a number of um, strike funds that you can contribute to. They've, they've got, like, grocery card um, services happening for writers who need to go and buy food. Um, so there's a lot of – there is a lot of direct action that you can that you can take. But, yeah, I hope that people are uh, sort of sitting up and, and taking notice of this. And, I mean, one of the nightmares for the CEOs, and they've talked about this, again, another – quiet thing they've said out loud is that what their greatest fear is is that these strikes will inspire other labor actions so <laughs> hopefully I mean, in that sense i think i think they are you know there's a lot of strikes happening in mm. um in la at the moment the nurses are on strike i think the starbucks workers are going on strike um the ups which is one of the delivery services is about to go on strike so yeah i i i hope that this is inspiring to people you know it, it always um, hurts my hurts me in my heart when people say they don't think it's worth joining a union. And yeah, sometimes it is frustrating, and you kind of feel like you're not really getting much done. But the, the as you say, Fluke, the power of that collective is really just something that um, often cannot be ignored. And I suspect we're about to see that happen in Hollywood. Mm, and at least here in Australia, you can uh, claim it on your tax, can't you? Yes, union you can. fees. <laughs> That's what I always say to students. You know, at least yeah. you can put it on your tax return. Totally. <laughs> Clem, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. If anybody ever wants to talk about unions or strikes or anything, just um, hit me up. I'm I'm, I'm clearly happy to yarn. (laughs) 
So from this Friday, the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival will be showcasing a wonderful selection of documentaries at Cinema Nova. And one of the many films in the program is Jesse's debut film, Rainbow Video, a love letter to video stores of sorts. (laughs) (laughs) Jesse, firstly, congratulations on your film. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Now, your film is the product of your practice-led PhD about the relationship between video shops and artistic communities. Yes, indeed. So why are video stores so special to you? Um, I guess I'm a video artist and like a lot of video artists and filmmakers, I'm sure, um, the first way that I came into contact with screen culture, with moving image, with any form of kind of screen-based art was through my local video store. And about 12 years ago, uh, I started to notice that my favourite video stores were closing down. And I, I guess part of me was sort of shocked that this thing that had been such a crucial part of my upbringing and my childhood and also my development as an artist was suddenly disappearing. And I wanted to know whether other artists had had the same experience as me, whether that sort of like neighbourhood sort of access point to culture had influenced them the way that it influenced me. And so I started... I just started interviewing people really without any consciousness of like where it was going to go, what the outcome was going to be. Um, and that kind of led me on this trail that eventually turned into a feature length documentary somehow. (laughs) (laughs) You know, over the course of our lifetime, we have seen so many shifts Mm. in video technology uh, from VHS to DVD to Blu-ray and now streaming How do you think that these shifts in consumption of different video formats affect your video art practice? Yeah, so, I mean, I don't don't make a whole lot of work using VHS. Uh, I've certainly played with VCRs during the course of this project just to kind of get myself into the headspace of that physical media again, which is what I trained on um, originally. But I think that um, probably the main way it affects practice is the accessibility of the content on those mediums and also the way that uh, physical media is it can hang around you know Um, with streaming services even though I see them sort of sitting on a continuum with the video lending library um, they really were a development out of video shops you know Netflix was a DVD rental service Um, with a physical collection of items they can accumulate, they can sort of accrue in one place and they hang around and they can recirculate and there's that possibility to see across time and across, you know, geographical space and and get glimpses of different kinds of practices and artists and filmmakers that, you know, aren't necessarily going to hang around on something like Netflix or even on, you know, something like Canopy, which is a service that I've used a lot of streaming service. And, you know, uh, they sort of don't um, have a a life beyond what that service deems, you know, useful to them or profitable. So Mm. I think that's the access thing is something that has emerged out of this project that I think is one of the most important things. Yeah, and I love that you featured not just video stores, but you've also got university video libraries. Now, for me, when I was a film student uh, back in Perth, I used both, going to those video stores, going to the university video library, watched so many classics in a, a tiny room <laughs> with headphones. It opened up so many doors. It was a re-education, but also just created 
cinema literacy that I don't know was really – yes, I was learning film theory and I was learning film production – but there was something else. It was like following this little ribbon through a sort of the forest of, of cinema and the history of cinema. And it was a beautiful experience. And there was something about those conversations I would have. I remember going to Starland Video just outside of Frio um, and yeah. having Starland dollars. I actually found a Starland dollar in my <laughs> wallet Amazing. <laughs> ages ago. And I was just like, wow, that is a blast from the past. There is something in the conversations you have in the video stores and I love that you have so much time in Rainbow Video in listening to these people talk about their experiences, not just video artists but the video store owners themselves, being there physically in that same space, having recommendations and getting a sense for where to next with film watching. A hundred percent. I was thinking about that on the way over here actually about you know, a question that constantly pops up in my head as I've been doing this project, the research project and also making the film is, you know, am I pitting these things against each other? What, what, you know, I know that on the internet, for example, there are so many places for film culture that you can, you know, go and even interact with people online, but there are, they are often very narrowly defined. And that is what a library is not. A library is not narrowly defined. It's, it's, you know, like I was saying before, it's a place where, a commercial library or a university library is where people gather and all this other unintended stuff falls out of that. Not mm. just, it's not just sort of, I feel like we have this framework now where, you know, culture is delivered to you in an individualised way and it is delivered with the kind of efficiency being like the guiding framework. I don't know that that's appropriate to the delivery of culture, you know. I don't know that that's like we miss out on all this other stuff, all this social dynamics, all these kind of, yeah, that ability to sort of navigate your way through, just follow your nose, you know, yeah. and, and those unanticipated consequences of video shops and video libraries are like really something that I was trying to capture. And so much of the streaming services are based on an algorithm sometimes. These more niche ones, alternative ones, sometimes they're not. There is actually someone behind there curating the screening or they have someone who guess curates Mm -hmm. but you know a lot of the ones that we get the major streaming services it is an algorithm Mm -hmm. so it's not going to understand the nuance of oh I liked that that supporting actor was in this or this scene reminds me a bit of this other film and that's really only humans can can sort of do that to have those kind of conversations and I love that you spotlight a whole host of Melbourne video stores I was love to see video dogs get a mention that was actually my go-to when I first moved to Melbourne it was perfectly en route to uni (laughs) Uh, video busters and picture search which still does run today it's actually just down from my work I couldn't help but feel watching your film a bit of a sadness that many of these places um, and stores that you profile, they're just, they don't exist anymore. Yeah, I mean, most of them, I captured them right as they were about to close down. I mean, mm. I think that that is what they say about oral history is that you're the, you know, the angel of death, basically, <laughs> that you sort of swoop in just as, and it's it's sort of like, or the other uh, term is um, salvage ethnography, you know, mm. the sort of like trying to capture something while you can, you know. Mm. Um, so definitely there was a sense of melancholy in a lot mm. of those places. And those um, video shop uh, managers and owners, like they – this is this was all shot sort of like well beyond the era of video shops. So mm. those people were hanging on only because they really cared about it and mm. because they, you know, uh, there was no business model that was going to make it work. It's really their passion and their attachment to their collection – 
of titles and their community mm. um, that many of them were still servicing to some degree. Um, with Derek and Picture Search, I think it's really fascinating because I think when I went there, um, that was a couple of years ago now, and I mean, I think it was it was vulnerable, but it has persisted and he's somehow still making it work. And really, um, he's really doing a lot of work to promote it all the time. Yeah. And yeah, so it's fascinating. Actually, after MIF last year, I absolutely loved Pure Shit. That was one of the films that was playing. I was like, how do I get my hands on this? Yeah. I want more people to see this. It was impossible to find. Found it at Picture Search. Yeah. And I think it cost me $4 to rent for the week. Often the people who run these places, like Derek, are you know, collectors of these films that exist outside, kind of on the fringes. Mm-hmm. So what you're getting... Find, sorry, what I find amazing about Picture Search, it has a like a whole slew of out-of-print DVDs mm. or things that you can't find anymore mm. now. Like Even you're saying, VHS click. still. You can what? Even VHS still. Yeah. It has a lot of VHS Which still. is amazing. And, you know, that kind of thing, even I feel like libraries don't have so many of those things anymore coming from public libraries perspective mm. that often comes to what you what the space that you have yeah. um it does take up does cost money to store things um that said i do use libraries sometimes yeah to get DVDs. Mm-hmm. yeah and, and i think that a lot of public libraries do try to keep up a really healthy dvd library mm. um they're still checked out just as much as any books um they you know there are things that you can't get from streaming services personally with dvds i really love listening to commentary Mm. and all the special features and it's so valuable because sometimes you watch a film you're like i just want to know more about this and yes you could look on your phone you could sort of search up but it's just so nice to have it all packaged and you know some of those commentaries they're often done by professionals in the industry and it's a delight to listen to you know many of your interviewees focus on the materiality of video jesse do you think that there is something that is lost i suppose in the translation from the physical to the digital i do i mean personally i definitely do i think that um i guess this is something that i sort of have gone into more deeply in the research project itself rather than in the film I've sort of tried to show not tell that aspect of it in the film um so there's a lot of you know touching there's a lot of haptic sounds in the film that kind of like evoke that um that pleasure of the haptic and how that really actually does help us make mental connections and help our imagination so it's not just a preference it's not just a nostalgia it's actually a thing that happens in our brain that's called cognitive congeniality where the arrangement of objects in space can actually help us think Um, and so I think that that's the other aspect of libraries in general not just video libraries but libraries you know per se that um, as you walk into them you have this amazing kind of whole body physical experience that's sensory and cognitive and you have this kind of um it's a container, so it's a contained sort of collection, but there's also this sense of plenty and this sense of, uh, you know, being able to navigate through this incredible kind of array of things and, you know, constantly being kind of like attracted by things that you weren't there to find. So I think that is, you know, that is kind of the um, the importance of physical media for me is that ability to connect with objects to how they spark 
different kind of even just like the artwork on videos like so many people that I interviewed across the whole project not just for the film spoke of films that they only knew through the artwork you know like through posters that they remembered (laughs) I still do that I still will say oh you know on the cover it had this and you feel crazy because people are like what I don't even know what the (laughs) film cover looks like yeah it's it's, I mean if you think it's like this incredibly rich Mm. um, embodied experience compared to looking at things on I know. Yeah, I mean, a cover is a cover that tries to tell you something about the film or contains, um, you know, something tangible and I think also intangible about it. Whereas on a streaming service, you've got an icon, you yeah. know, and the icon is designed to be clicked on and that's it. Mm. There's nothing yeah. beyond that. I was going to say that before about algorithms. That's the other thing is, you know, Netflix have um, – very, you know, self-consciously kind of invested so much money in their algorithm and they've held competitions to kind of like improve it and all this kind of thing. But actually, I mean, most people, it's very well established in research that most people don't take their suggestions, that really the ulterior motive is just to push the content Mm. that they're producing themselves. That's what they continually sort of put forward. That's very interesting. It's not actually a very useful you know, the and suggestion, I'll, yeah, is not very useful. And you want to be challenged sometimes with mm. your viewing practices. You don't necessarily want to only watch a particular genre or a particular actor on screen. Um, and I can't help but note that, you know, we're talking about unions and strikes. Libraries are really very cost effective. You can join your local library for free. You can access these video libraries. Yes, of course, you know, you have to be a university student to access the university libraries. A lot of the video stores, relatively cheap um, rental fees. Of course, we have the SBS and ABC and things like that. Mm. But some of these bigger ones, they are quite costly to join. And but there are also streaming services you can access as a library member. That's right. Yeah. That's you know, right. Like, Canopy? Yeah, Canopy and Beamer. Things. Yeah, Beamer yeah. through your through you, through your local library. You yeah. can access Beamer film mm-hmm. for sure. I do think something is lost when you are just solo going through and looking at these websites. Nothing against them. I think they do an excellent curation job. It's just that you miss that um, one-on-one conversations that come up. Yeah. I've had so many films recommended to me. It was how I learnt so much about film. And um, I do hope that a lot of the ones that are still remaining still hold on. Jesse, your film, Rainbow Video, is playing at Cinema Nova this Saturday as part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. Thank you so much for coming on Primal. Thank you for having me. So, MIF, it's around the corner. It's Next coming month. up real yeah. soon. August 3? I think so, yeah. It's the first week of August usually. Yeah. Um, so many. The, the, the program got announced just last week. Tickets are already getting snapped up. Um, I thought we could just give some recommendations of films that we're really excited to see. Ello, do you want to start? Well, I'm really excited about seeing Soda Jerk's Hello Dankness. Yes. Which I'm <laughs> that sure is on my list. it's going to be so good. And I feel like we in Melbourne are the last people in the world to see it. <laughs> it's done, I think, Adelaide, Perth, Brisbane, Sydney and all around the world, Europe, the US. I actually so, travelled to Adelaide specifically to see it. Did you? Yeah. So you've seen it already? I have seen it, <gasps> but I am going to see it again because yep. I think it definitely rewards repeat reviewing. Like, yeah, their stuff yeah. is really dense and multi-layered and fun and vibrant and other films, pieces of video art, whatever you call it, that they've made, I've mm. watched many times, so I could imagine it would be... 
really bad. It also, is, yeah. also amazing to see in an audience. I feel like yes. these these screenings are usually packed, mm. uh, especially in that first week. I'm actually excited to watch it surrounded by a full house. Totally, mm. and I think they actually that's a really big part of their practice is that they really preference cinematic screening. They really sort of you know quite particular about that. Yeah, and I am very keen to see what it does and what they do with the material. I remember being, because they sort of teased uh, a bit about it before it started, before it was finished and before it was doing the rounds, and the image that they chose to tease it was of Donald Trump or of, you know, that sculpture of Donald Trump. And I just was so repulsed by everything to do with him <laughs> that I was like, why is this image here? I cannot stand it. I'm so excited to see this, but I don't want to see this face anymore. <laughs> but I'm, sh- you know, I'm sure there's, they're, they're so clever as a pair and as artists that yes. well, what they will do. I think like... Um... Um, you know, no spoilers, but I do think that it probably will surprise some people how, like, melancholy this film is. Oh. Like, it really, I think, comes from a place of despair, actually. Mm. Another that I'm keen to see is the James Benning film, Allensworth, which I think is a documentary. He makes sort of landscape cinema. Yes, I saw that. Um, yeah. It looks fit. Well, I have, haven't really read up that much about it, but last year I saw James Benning's The United States of America, which was kind of um, just uh, really beautiful, but in the end a really fun joke. And it was nice to get a little bit of his sense of humour because he's someone who um, sort of makes what tend to be these really austere films. Mm. Um, And I'm really keen to see that again in the big Acme cinema. Mm. Mm. The other one that I think you were also keen on, Eloise, um, that I just bought a ticket to is Fresh Kill. Uh, So again, like a a film from, I think the nineties, an American indie film by a filmmaker, Shu Li Cheng. Um, it just looks quite radical and underground and, um, yeah, I love me for kind of highlighting those, that kind of like fringe filmmaking and independent filmmaking. Mm. Yeah, and actually this is a little on track with you, Jesse. but I looked up to see whether it was available on Blu-ray or even DVD <laughs> and there's nothing around. Yeah, so I it. thought, well, I have to see this one. Yeah, that's it, event cinema. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we should mention... Uh, Dario Argento um, is going to be having a oh, – how many screenings? Was it 12, 12 I think? 12 screenings, um, which is um, remarkable. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, one that could be fa- – I think will be really interesting to watch on the big screen, uh, Man Ray's Return to Reason, amazing mm. restoration. Um, that will be an Australian premiere. It is the 100th anniversary uh, yeah, I think that'll be a fantastic one to check out. Um, and we should also mention opening night gala, Shader. Um, I'm very excited to see this. This is an Australian director, Nuri Nassari. There's been a lot of press about it already. I love that they've, uh, there's been a trend at MIF to open with an Australian film. I think that's really important. We are There's so much talent here. Um, any final recommendations before we wrap up? Chantelle Ackerman's Golden 80s. Yeah. Yes, that amazing. Yeah, that'd be a, a rare one and pretty good to get to. Yeah, absolutely. For more information about those films and for the screenings and to book your tickets, head to miff.com.au. On tonight's show, we spoke to Clem Basto about the Screen Actors Guild and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists joining the Writers Guild of America strike. 
Uh, we also spoke to Jessie about her film Rainbow Video, which is screening at Cinema Nova this Saturday as part of the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. You can head to MDFF's website or Cinema Nova's for, to buy your tickets. And we finished up with some recommendations of what to see at MIFF, which kicks off on the 3rd of August and we'll be running in cinemas until the 20th and then online from the 18th to the 27th of August. And also tomorrow night at Thornbury Picture House, the Unknown Pleasures team are going to be bringing a screening of Margot Nash's Call Me Mum, which is her 2006 film. The event will also feature a Q&A with Margot Nash, Kathleen Mary Fallon and Michael McMahon, the producer. Call Me Mum is, has been described as a critical work of mid-2000s Australian independent cinema. Make sure you check it out. You can head to thornbypicturehouse.com.au. Eloise and Jessie, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 